Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have Stephanie Slade, Managing Editor at Reason, with me today to talk about the right ordering of economic life, regulation, what Catholic popes have to say about economic life and capitalism. And Stephanie is just a great person to talk to about this. Stephanie, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. So in December 2019 issue of Reason, you wrote an article called Regulation and the Right Ordering of Economic Life. And the subtitle, which is kind of why I want to have you on here, because uh, is called What Libertarians Can Learn from Catholic Social Doctrine. Now, many libertarians who don't really care about what Christians think or what any religious leader thinks might want to be like, well, why would I ever need to know that? Now, I want to have you on here to talk about this a little bit because Christians, whether Catholic or not, still tend to pay attention to what or, or notice what the pope says and what you know strong religion you know big picture religious you know high level religious people have to say about capitalism about economic life things like that and so we have things to teach libertarians who are what i would, might call ordinary libertarians non-christian libertarians or whatever so i just want to get a sense from you you can share this with our audience what's the basic like gist of the of the article here Sure. Um, so just to, to back up one half step, this article was part of a larger package, actually, in the December issue, um, in which we were trying to sort of revisit, we were sort of revisiting or reclaiming the word regulation and looking at what people mean when they say regulation, what historically has that word meant and what whether there are other ways to understand, you know, economic regulation besides the traditional or what has come to be the sort of in the modern era, the the standard default assumption that if you're gonna have if you're gonna have an economy, you need to have it regulated by by a central government, by the state. Um, and so we we were sort of exploring this question from different directions. And so my contribution was, what does the Catholic Church and what does sort of Catholic social teaching have to say? And can it teach us anything about what we mean by by the word regulation? And so I, I spent I, a few years ago, I, I was fortunate enough to be selected to the Robert, Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship, which gave me an opportunity to invest some time and resources in, in really um, studying some of these questions. I spent a lot of time reading through the what are called the social encyclicals, which I know this is an ecumenical podcast. So, so just to, in case anybody's unclear, this is a sort of body of teachings, mostly letters written by popes over the past about 130 years on questions having to do with economics, on questions having to do with the right ordering of society in a sort of industrialized or post-industrial society that we all that we live in now. Because this is a change, you know, for most of Christian history. We were not in an industrial society, and now we are. And so the popes wanted to to study these questions uh, and figure out what, how do we apply Christian moral teaching to this sort of new world order that we have. Um, so I spent time reading through all these social encyclicals, and uh, I was really surprised by what I found because it was not necessarily what you might expect if all you know about popes is what you sort of get from pop culture. Um, I found that that many of these letters were quite moving in their denunciations of socialism. They're not libertarian, and they're and they're not even necessarily 
pro-capitalist, so to speak, or, or, or classical liberal even. But what they say is things like, we have moral obligations to each other, the market needs to be regulated, and the first line of defense when it comes to regulating the market should be in the way that we treat each other and the decisions that we make as moral actors and that we band together into private um, institutions and organizations, the decisions that we make at that level. And only, only if all of those other things fail, should the government then step in. And that is just not, I think, what most people think of when they think of what is the Catholic Church's understanding of, of economic regulation. So I thought that was a really interesting contribution to the larger conversation. I think a lot of people believe that the Catholic Church would have a top-down approach to what should the economy be ordered like because it is sort of a top-down Christian institution. Right, exactly. And and that's why I think it's so important to sort of differentiate between how we view society and how we view, or, or I guess I should say, what is the right role? What is the correct role of private institutions and differentiating between private and public institutions, the state and the non-state actors? Because the church is hierarchical when it comes to its own sort of structure. And um, it does have, you know, sort of assume unto itself the right to pass down teachings to believing Catholics and and demand a certain level of obedience from Catholics um, and from believers. But that that is very different from necessarily requiring that the church would say that the state should have an, an equal or a parallel right to sort of, you know, demand certain obedience from that sorry that the state should have that sort of same right to to pass regulations and, and hand down sort of, you know, make demands and and demand obedience. That one is private, one is public. And as libertarians, I think we often, we, we, we accept that distinction. The rest of the, the sort of world, the non-libertarian world doesn't always draw that same distinction. And so it was very interesting to find that the church does, in fact. You know, when you research the, the encyclicals, how far back did you research? The, the sort of encyclical that's considered by most to be the first social encyclical is from 1891. Um, so about 130 years worth of these documents. Okay. And I, I read all of them. <laughs> you did or did not read all of them? I did. I read Oh, them. wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wow, that's impressive. So is there, I, in my mind, if I were just to like randomly be pulled on the street and someone asked me this incredibly obscure question, how far back did those encyclicals start becoming more socialist or anti-capitalist? Is there some sort of like decade where things started transitioning or are they all pretty well like, you know, kind of a mixed bag the whole way through? Yeah, I mean, I would set aside maybe the, the current pope uh, for our conversation because I think people's tempers can run a little hot when we start talking about Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. But um, f- up until up until his predecessor, Pope Benedict, um, so basically from Pope Leo in 1891 up until about 2013, there more or less the the docu- these documents were telling a pretty singing a pretty consistent tune, so to speak. I mean, they're saying that, uh, again, there is not a libertarian argument, but it's it's an argument that says that individuals have moral obligations and that decisions and regulation ought to happen at the level that's closest to the individual as possible. This is a, um, a Catholic, there's a word you'll hear called subsidiarity. Yeah. And this is the idea in, in Catholic social teaching originating with these popes that um, decisions should be made and problems should be solved as close to the individual person as possible. It doesn't mean there's never a role for the federal government. It doesn't even necessarily mean that the role for the federal government in the eyes of some Catholics might not be larger than the role that I might like or you might like. I mean, most most Catholics are not libertarians. The popes certainly are not libertarians. But they, do, they did give us this gift of subsidiarity that says you should start 
by trying to solve a problem at the individual level, at the family level, at the community level, try creating a charitable institution to solve that problem. Turn to a neighborhood group, even a labor union. The popes have been very pro sort of organized labor. So, so that's like maybe a wrinkle in this from a libertarian perspective, but I don't think it should be because again, that's an example of private individuals voluntarily grouping together to try to solve a problem at a much, much lower level mm-hmm, before mm-hmm. you bring in sort of a co- the coercive power of the state. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think the idea of organized labor or unions is an anti-libertarian idea. In fact, it's actually very libertarian in, in one very important sense, and it can bring balance to power by individuals voluntarily joining together. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and so if you go back to, to Rerum Navarum is this first social encyclical that I mentioned from 1891. And if you start reading from back then and read forward, you'll you'll find some very moving language um, talking about the importance of sort of the ability of private institutions to solve problems. So like, uh, you know, uh, here's a quote from Rerum Navarum. Employers and workmen may of themselves affect much by means of associations and organizations that afford opportune aid to those who are in distress. This may include uh, enumerated societies for mutual help, various benevolent foundations, institutions for the welfare of boys and girls, for young people to help widows, basically to help the elderly. The idea was that there are many, many different types of institutions that we ought to be exploring to solve our problems. Mm -hmm. And and, um, if we're not doing that, that's actually a failure at the individual level that we're not doing enough. We're not sort of stepping up to the plate to try to solve problems. We're just assuming, well, you know, somebody in Washington or somebody in the state capitol Mm -hmm. is going to take care of that. So I don't have to. Yeah. Well, and it seems that there is this sort of ethical obligation or I, I guess like a discernment that needs to be talked about. And I think the Catholic Church, of course, and every Christian should be thinking about what is my ethical maybe obligation or even responsibility for what happens around me and for, you know, watching out for evil and injustice and, you know, what is the right way to combat the things that we think are, you know, societal or even just individual ills in society. Um, And so, I wonder, it seems like what you're you're doing here partly in this article is explaining that libertarians have something to learn from this, this methodology, for lack of a better word in my brain right now, to this is this is a way for us to have a check on the market and it doesn't have to be the state. That's right. So the idea is that every time you make a a, a sort of decision in the in the when you're when you're a consumer as a store trying to decide whether to buy this product or that product or whether to go to this store or to order something online, whether to uh, you know spend your money in this way or save it in that way. Um, and also when you're in in uh, participating in the marketplace in other ways, if you're an employer and you're trying to decide, do I want to hire another person or do I want to give the person I already have on my payroll a raise or whatever? you know, we're all constantly, constantly making uh, you know millions of choices every day within the within the marketplace. And every single one of those choices, when when you sort of pile them all up on top of each other, it has a regulatory effect on on the economic outcomes, on the market outcomes. So the amount of poverty even we have in our society is going to be determined by whether people make one choice or another, the cumulative effect of all those choices, Um, whether to give to charity or to spend money on yourself or or whatever it is, all those all those decisions, millions and millions more than we could possibly, you know, try to try to even um, count will have a regulatory effect naturally. I mean, whether you like it or not, they, the economic outcomes could be different depending on the different choices that individuals make and their individual capacity and their private capacity, completely setting aside any sort of top-down regulation by the government. 
And so that gives us a lot of power, actually. We are, we are all in our own way regulating uh, market outcomes. So, so that's, that, that's like a very important, um, it's a counter argument to the idea that if the market needs to be regulated, then therefore it must be done by government. Actually, it's, it's impossible to not have it be done in many, many other ways as well all the time. Yeah, I think that's a major point that libertarians, especially libertarian Christians, can make is that there are multiple checks on the state. And I think it's I think it's our really our duty to kind of point this out that like, really, you've got one, you know, you don't want to ask people be like, really, that's the only thing you can think of that can help, you know, thwart against, you know, greed and injustice of, of all kinds. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so to, to actually finish the question you asked me a moment ago about what can what can maybe non-Christian libertarians learn from this, what I think is important, just it's just a helpful reminder, is that just because something is a market outcome doesn't mean, just, just because two things are, are market outcomes doesn't mean they're necessarily morally created equal, right? You could have one market outcome that has nothing to do with government interference in the marketplace, but because um, the population in that society is is moral and believes itself to have moral obligations to each other and chooses to spend its its resources in one way, the outcomes will look different than in another in another society, you know, hypothetical, the, the sort of counterfactual society where you have um, norms of selfishness and selfish disregard for other people and profit seeking above all. I'm not talking about in either of these cases, governments interfering in the markets. I'm talking about free people making different choices and mm-hmm. therefore ending up with different market outcomes. And we as libertarians shouldn't feel like we have to say, well, that society and that society are are equally valid or equally good. We're allowed to say, no, actually, a society in which people treat each other well is a better society. And, and that's separate from the question of whether you know, there was government involvement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Insofar as it relates to what the state is doing, well, that in and of itself might be the right approach. But in terms of like the society itself, the, you know, there's more to it than just whether or not the state is meddling. Right. And I think it, it's it actually, it weakens the argument that a sort of statist type person might make for why, why you need to have top-down government regulation if the marketplace is being well-regulated by moral actors already, right? So the better we do our job at the individual level and at the sort of civil society level, then the the harder we make it for people who believe that the only way to get good outcomes is to impose them top-down. Yeah. So, you know, lately, it's pretty clear if you pay attention to the news at all and what people are complaining about around society, whether legitimately or not, is the whole idea of inequality and wealth and power. And, you know, like you read articles like, you know, the top four people have more wealth than God, you know, or something like that. <laughs> um, no, they, they, it's more like the top 10 have, you know, more wealth, uh, control more of the economy, depending on how, you know, bombastic they want their article headlines to be, than the rest of the 90, you know, than 4 billion people or something like that. So the popes have not been silent on the issue of vast amounts of wealth. And it seems as though the assumption is that that there's this sort of like exploitation going on, you know, with that. Do you have any do you have any thoughts on why popes tend to go after those with lots of money or why anybody in that in that sort of uh, critique does? Yeah, well, you know, I I don't want to be too um, I don't know. I don't want to be too critical of the impulse that says, you know, it is possible for some people to have an obscene amount of money. And that seems sort of wrong somehow. It, it seems, I think it strikes people at a gut level as something is wrong. If if, people, if there's that much inequality, if some people are that much richer than others, while, while um, 
some people are that rich while other people are suffering or going without. Um, and, and, you know, in our world, there still are lots and lots of people who are, are struggling and, and um, suffering with power under poverty. Right. So there, again, at a gut level, there's an understandable, um, reaction that people have. Mm-hmm. And, but what I would, po- I would begin by pointing out that many of the richest people on earth seem to actually share that intuition and have reacted voluntarily to it by saying, by making, you know, giving pledges, I will give away at least half of my wealth. Bill Gates is the famous example, but he has mm-hmm. recruited like many of his fellow, you know, multi-billionaires to make similar pledges where they say like, we will give away much of what we have, most of what we have, in fact, because it seems it seems wrong that we should just hoard it and keep it for ourselves when there are other ways that that money could be spent that would do more good in the world. So they're, they're voluntarily making that choice. And that's sort of what I'm pointing out when I say, if you caricature what a market outcome is and you assume that it means everybody is a sort of uh, automaton who only seeks as much money from me as possible, then you're, you're missing actually the reality, the, the sort of mm-hmm. the much richer world that we live in, in which we are all humans. We all, we all care about each other. We all care about many, many other things other than just how much money can I hoard for myself? And our choices every single day reflect that fact. Hey everybody, Bob Murphy here. Wanted to let you know that on April 20th of 2020, I am going to be debating at the Soho Forum in New York City. And the topic is going to be whether Christians should support free market capitalism. So of course, I'm going to be in the affirmative. My opponent, Tony Campola, is going to be in the negative. If you're interested, I encourage you to get tickets sooner rather than later. Go to libertarianchristians.com slash debate and use the promo code LCI25, all lowercase, in order to get 25% off the ticket price. So again, that's libertarianchristians.com slash debate. Use promo code LCI25, all lowercase. Hope to see you there. What is the problem with using the phrase unbridled capitalism? The popes team tend to use that a lot when they, when they, or I should just, I don't want to just like pick on popes in this episode <laughs> here, but like <laughs> people talk about the idea of unbridled or unfettered capitalism. And there seems to be a problem with that phrase for, for people like you and me. Right. So the, the problem with that phrase is that there's no such thing as an unbridled marketplace um, because of what we've been talking about, because every time an individual actor within the marketplace makes a decision about how to spend his or her resources, time, money, whatever the case may be, um, every decision we make brings in all of our values. All of our values are sort of incorporated into that decision. When I decide whether I want to buy another pair of shoes or donate money to Catholic charities, I'm bringing my values into it. And the choice I make is affecting the market outcome. And the, the market outcome will be different depending on which values I, I happen to have. So the marketplace is necessarily always regulated in many ways. It's, it's, it's bridled, so to speak. The idea, the connotation that the phrase unbridled capitalism has is one in which everybody is like an automaton, a, a machine that can only take all the inputs, process, you know, cr- the computer crunches the numbers. I process all the process, all the um the options available to me and I make whatever choice is going to be best for my personal monetary bottom line. That's not how humans work. We are not, <laughs> machines, right? Like that's just not how anybody operates. That's not to say that money isn't important and it. It isn't a motivating factor for many people. That's also not a bad thing. Uh, it, you know, people have to support their families and to be self-sufficient is a good thing, in fact. So that's certainly one of the considerations that we are all bringing into our moral and our, our personal calculus. 
but it's not the only one. I mean, nothing that nothing would make sense about our world if that if we actually believe that to be true. Yeah. Well, you know, so your article talks, you know, you, you have something to say for people who are sort of uh, fans of big government, or maybe they don't like that phrase because they won't say, oh, I don't want big government, I want smart government or whatever. People who are kind of run to the state, like it's their first impulse to like go to a government institution in as a, you know, here, we're going to resolve this problem. And because you can, you were talking about that earlier, it's like, well, there's other ways to regulate and then, of course, you've you've also got something to say to the libertarians who say that no, no culture matters, too. Like, there is something, there's more to it than just whether or not the state's involved. So I want to shift from that question to actually a different article that you wrote last year. And that has to do with conservative nationalism. So what you say in the article is that there's this new conservative nationalism and they are <laughs> they're in favor of government. Stephanie, I thought the conservatives were not in favor of more government to solve our problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the last couple of years has seen this really interesting emergence of, I would say, even a fracturing or a schism within the sort of conservative movement um, among the people who were sort of old fashioned fusionist Reaganite style conservatives who believe in they probably believe in traditional values, but they also believe in individual liberty, uh, free markets, free trade, that sort of thing. And these new conservative nationalists, uh, and that, that's that's what they're calling themselves. I'm, that's not meant to be, I'm, you know, I'm not uh, pejorative. hurling, yeah, hurling pejorative. But um, there there was a big conference last summer, which is was the impetus for this article I wrote called the um, the National Conservatism Conference, and th- these are conservative intellectuals who are saying, you know what, your libertarianism, it, we tried it and it failed. And um, and so it's time for us to put America first. And that means tariffs. That means subsidies for American industry to help our businesses and our manufacturers compete against foreign competition and, uh, and out-compete foreign competition. I mean, it means in massive investments into infrastructure uh, at home. It means probably like... Um, punitive taxes against American companies that that open a factory in another country and tax breaks and subsidies and other sort of, you know, the carrots, the sort of dangling of Mm -hmm. um, things in front of companies that will bring jobs back home. And also a big part of this just seems to also involve more strict socially conservative laws that try to restore the sort of Judeo-Christian character of our of our country. And so this is a this is a really abrupt change because, uh, as I argue in the piece, this is a rejection of the sort of classical liberalism that says that has for, for decades been an integral part of the conservative coalition was was respect for individual freedom and free trade and and uh, free markets. And this is saying like nope, no more of that. What we need to do is look out for us first, and that even if it means you know bringing the the, the hand of the state to bear to get the outcomes we want. This just sounds so like progressivism to me. <laughs> it is. I mean, it, in a sense, it is conservative progressivism, which which sounds like an oxymoron. Many of the the words and labels and dichotomies that we are have grown used to stop, have sort of stopped making a lot of sense lately. Because, like, I, for example, find that the only way to to really properly capture this divide is over the word liberalism. Some of the conservatives are liberals, 
that's like me. I'm a liberal conservative, right? I'm I'm somebody mm-hmm. who wants to respect individual liberty mm-hmm. and the and the illiberal or post-liberal conservatives who say, you know, liberalism and individual autonomy is overrated. What matters is national strength and unity. So um so so yeah, the, the language kind of falls apart and, and our ability to communicate about these things is is being tried, I think, right now. Um it is a sort of progressivism. It is a sort of intentional embracing of a sort of collectivist big government a reorienting of society that in a way that says we're going to put the collective above the individual they're pretty explicit about this this is what they want this is what they believe and it, it is uh worrying to me <laughs> i don't agree with that yeah. at all definitely on the other side of that schism but it's a thing that's happening and it and part of why it's happening is that donald trump um seems to represent i mean he he openly identifies as a nationalist right he, he says that repeatedly. So they have this sort of standard bearer who is currently holding power. And so I don't think it's a thing that we can ignore. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's interesting. You know, your article really doesn't talk about Trump and it doesn't need to. And that's what I think is notable because this is, it's almost like it's a, a little bit more sophisticated version of America first. Um, I mean, it's clearly, you know, about being America first, but like it has this appearance or sort of veneer of professional or academic quality to it. Like, it's not just, you know, getting up there and rah-rah America. You know, it's people saying, well, that's been tried, and, you know, we ha- we think we have a better way forward. Like, it's a little bit more thoughtful. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. These are smart people. And that's, a, that's why, again, another reason why we have to take it seriously. I think what's happening, though, is that they're somewhat retroactively trying to construct a sort of intellectual um, scaffolding around the Trump phenomenon. So mm-hmm. Trump got elected. Nobody saw that coming. No, nobody saw that coming. And he got elected on this sort of very America first, you know, make America great again platform. And so now these conservative intellectuals, some some of them, the people on sort of that side of the divide have said, okay, now we need to, we need to build something around, around that movement that will allow it to outlive Trump so that we can keep the momentum that he represents going and, and accomplish what we want to accomplish. So in, in some cases, I think that's somewhat opportunistic. A lot of these people were on the other side arguing precisely the opposite of what they're arguing now before Trump came on the scene. And so, but but some of them, I think, are true believers in, in what they're arguing. So, Stephanie, one of the uh, podcasts that I also listen to is the Reason Editors Roundtable. And from time to time, you were brought on that group on their weekly episode to talk about the state of polls and what is what is America thinking about, you know, the upcoming election. So we're we're you know, we're releasing this episode in February, so we're clearly way ahead of, you know, the Democrats haven't even picked out who they have. Like what's the general state of like where things are heading, you know, in the in the election for 2020? Yeah, it's funny. You're you're right that I'm often brought onto the or when I am brought onto the Reason Editors podcast. It's often my role is to remind everybody repeatedly that they should be reluctant to put too much stock in what the polls say because it's so early. Um, but you know, I've been I've been making that point for like the last three years almost. Um, it's now it's now <laughs> you have to keep making it earlier and earlier because the, these election. I mean, we're already probably in the 24 election. You know, pretty next week, right? Yeah, probably before even. The polls closed for 2020. We're already going to be, you know, doing survey research on who's going to be the nominee in four years. Um, but you know, I, what I want to say is that although I think it is very important to keep in mind that the polls 
you know, the polls cannot be trusted. The further out, the further out you go from from the actual day of voting, the less predictive capacity the polls have. That's what I want to say. Now we are in 2020. It is actually becoming a little bit more reasonable to start to look at the polls and to draw some conclusions and maybe even make some predictions based on what they say. It's not crazy to look at like where, for example, does the real clear politics polling average stand right now? Um, that that is not to say though that you should put too much stock in it because. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of problems with, um, for one thing, usually the polling averages are national polls. And of course, the the <laughs> voting happens at a state level, right? Like the primaries right. are statewide primaries. The general election, you're actually electing, you know, electoral college delegates. So anything that is just like averaging na- nationwide polling is going to be just a very broad strokes kind of snapshot of where the country stands and is not going to be super, super effective at predicting outcomes. So yeah. just with all those caveats in place, um, it's not crazy to start looking at the polls now. I think um, the fact that Joe Biden is, is still leading um, is, you know, it tells us something. It, it's not surprising. It's not surprising to me at all that Biden and Sanders are the two, have the two sort of, um, are the two front runners right now for the Democratic nomination because they are the two people that would we would expect to have the highest name recognition, you know, a former vice president and the runner up uh, for the 2016 Democratic nomination are the two people that most Americans are most likely to have heard of on the Democratic side. So right now, as people are just starting to tune in to the 2020 election, they're starting to pay attention to start maybe watching the debates, thinking about who they're going to vote for when their state's primary rolls around. Um, the people who have highest name recognition are going to have an edge so that it makes sense to me that Biden and Sanders would be would be leading. Yeah. Do you, okay, this is, this is kind of like a wacky theory here, but I've noticed that maybe this is only true of presidential elections, but I noticed that people who run on their first name don't get elected. Like, (laughs) like Rand, Bernie, Hillary, like, you know, Donald didn't run or Donald Trump didn't run as, you know, the Donald or Donald or whatever. Like, it just, I don't know. It just seems really kind of funny to me that uh, these people who I would find, like, I liked Rand Paul and, you know, with respect to everyone else. Um, but all the first name people didn't, didn't, didn't win. Is there any stock in that? <laughs> like would, in terms of name recognition, I guess that's why I'm bringing that up. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I would be, I would be slow to draw too many conclusions in part because in previous, I mean, going back decades, I don't remember a whole lot of people who ran on their first names. So the, the sort of our sample size here is small and yeah. is, is, uh, concentrated around the last few election cycles. Um, so I don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, Bernie is pretty well known as Bernie. So that may be, you know, depending on how how this election goes for him, may end up being a countervailing point to your, <laughs> your yeah, theory. Yeah, well, we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to be uh, uh, disproven uh, on, with, with Bernie Sanders, at least. <laughs> no. Oh, man. Um, well, Stephanie, I appreciate uh, you coming on and talking with us about these these topics. Um and uh, we'll look forward to having you on at, at some point. If uh, you want to listen to Stephanie more, listen to the edit, uh, Reason Editors podcast because Stephanie shows up there. And I'm, I'm guessing you'll show up there a little bit more since we're getting uh, closer and closer to the next election. So, uh, and you can check her out uh, also on Reason.com. Yeah. And you know, since you brought up the, the article I wrote last year about nationalism, uh, a sneak preview for your listeners, um, the cover story of the, of next month's issue of Reason is actually going to be a longer piece by me about the sort of new conservative nationalist movement. So keep an eye out for that. Excellent. Thank you. All right, Stephanie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.